Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. You know, I talked with Father Hezekiah over the week and uh, thought to try to link together in terms of our Advent reflection today several themes that that, that all meet with folks like um, uh, St. Nicholas and also St. John the Baptist. Um, and that is that, um, um, and of course, obviously in Christ, and that is that Christ comes not just to show us love, but to give us the truth. And St. <clears throat> Nicholas stood up for the truth. He He's known for his great love, uh, especially for the poor. He, he gave, but often in secret, uh, to, to rescue, especially children, from the horrible effects of uh, sometimes their parents were reduced, you know, forced to reduce them to a kind of a slavery uh, because they were so poor. Um, and Nicholas would rescue, uh, rescue them. And so a great, great love, and especially, again, for children, um, but yet also a deep, and I would say feisty dedication to the truth. Most of us are aware of the classic story that at the council, Nicaea, he went, uh, Arius was up there going on and on <laughs> about how Jesus was somehow less than divine. And Nicholas just started to fume and get angrier and angrier. And by the way, he wasn't fat. He was known as a very thin, sort of almost gaunt man. And he started walking up the aisle, you know, and the question is, would he, what, what's he thinking? What, what's he about to do? And sure enough, he went up to the podium or wherever Arius was standing and he just belted him right in the face. Ow! <laughs> and um, <clears throat> there was a bit of a fracas and uh, Nicholas had to spend the night in jail, so to speak. <laughs> now, you hardly think of that when we hear jolly old St. Nicholas. That's the Coca-Cola remake, of course, you know, the fat, pudgy. Santa Claus-like figure who, <clears throat> you know, has a Coke in his hand and is just jolly, ho, ho, ho. Uh, Nicholas combined love uh, and truth. See, Now, you look at some, another prominent figure of Advent, the Advent season, and that, of course, is John the Baptist, again, who uh, combined love and truth. Uh, he loved God's people, and he wanted them to be ready for the coming of the Messiah. And he spoke to them about the importance of... Um, you know, of being ready and facing their sins and repenting of them. And he was also willing, you know, again, you know, the idea that maybe he, he loved or cared for Herod at all, but, you know, we hardly think of that. But nevertheless, he, he loved Herod enough to tell him the truth. You, you shouldn't be married to your brother's wife. That's, that's not right. You're committing a sin and um, you're going to, you're going to suffer for it. See? And, you know, Herod, of course, as we hear in the scripture, um, this is not, of course, Herod the Great at this point. It's Herod and Antipas, but he's he, he's concerned. Uh, he loved to hear John preach. There was something appealing, somehow love reaching through. Somehow Herod knew that John the Baptist was not just a good preacher because he was eloquent, 
but there was some ray of love he picked up. I'm, I'm convinced. I can't analyze Herod uh, psychologically, but we know from the scriptures that he was troubled by John the Baptist, what he said, but he liked to hear him. And um, gosh, just some little prick of his conscience that if it could have prevailed, a terrible disaster could have been avoided, namely that he wouldn't have had John beheaded simply because his his wife uh, and daughter asked for it. But anyway, you see the idea. There's some ray of love shining through there, even as he spoke the truth to Herod. Now, let me do in a quick aside. Because we're in a season now, not just a season, uh, Advent, but I mean, we're in a season in the church right now where most of our leaders are not willing to go to the Herods of our day and speak to them with love, but with clarity. To go now, you know, for example, the question about uh, our our president, presumably president elect. I'm almost less concerned, brothers and sisters, that um, that someone is publicly excoriating him and telling him to stay away from communion. My bigger concern, because I do not dislike Joe Biden. Um, he may not have policies that I, I I have certain definite policies I I have serious disagreements with him about, but I don't see him as an enemy. I see him as a brother. I, I'm worried about him. Has anyone ever really gone to Joe Biden, loved him enough and and took the risk to say to him or to Nancy Pelosi or to any number of, of these these very pro-abortion politicians? You know, you, you, I'm just worried. I just don't want you to go to hell. Um, you, you have to understand one day you're going to stand before God. See, do, do we love people enough to speak like that to them? See? And this really does belong to bishops because power speaks to power. But even a parish priest, does his own parish priest say, you know, you've got to go before God one day. And this is very serious. You're, you're, you're literally setting money aside so the children can be murdered. And you've got to think through this and really think, is my soul really worth the price of just being politically powerful? You know, and, and I don't want to just pick on him. There are many others. Now, I've had to do this to people in my parish, you know, who I don't want to get too specific because, you know, I, but but who were really traveling wrong, shall we say, in some aspect of their life. And I've had to take them into the, the parlor or sometimes even in the confessional, but mostly just take them aside and say, look, I'm really worried about you. You might if you if you die unrepentant, you're, I, I'm I'm convinced that you're going to go to hell and I can't be your judge, but the scriptures are clear that what you're doing, you can't keep doing. See? So you see in, in both St. Nicholas, who was willing to confront Arius. Yes, maybe a little bit, uh, not in the immediate way, but it, it certainly was memorable. Um, uh, or, uh, you know, John the Baptist, who was willing to confront Herod, even at the cost of his life. Because he cared about these, you know, somewhere in his heart, Nicholas didn't just, he cared about Arius. And he also cared about all the people that Arius was misleading. And he cared about, <clears throat> you know, all, all of, all, of all, all those children who needed to know that there's a God, a Christ who died and loved, loved them and died for them. And he wasn't just a man who got tortured, but was very God himself. And John the Baptist, too, to say, look, Arius, you know. You can't live like that. Or to anyone else who would come out to him and say, you've got to repent because one day you're going to face the Messiah. You're going to face God. See, now this may be an aside, but I, I want to make it present to us because if we are awaiting the coming of our Lord, you know, as I told you, I think last week, the first two Sundays of Advent are primarily devoted to the second coming of the Lord. Whether we go to him or he comes to us, the point is we're going to stand before him sooner than we think. You know, you're going to die. You don't get to say when or how. 
And you uh, and I have to be ready for that day. And so the first two Sundays of Lent, and I believe I mentioned it last week, but the, 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 the song, the Dies Irae, which made its way into the funeral rites eventually, was actually composed for the second Sunday of Advent, this very Sunday. And, you know, and I won't, you know, Dies Irae, Dies Ila, Salvet Seclum, Infavila, Teste David, Cum Sibila. Basically, you know, day of wrath and doom impending, heaven and earth and ashes ending, David's word with the sibyls blending. Oh, what fear man's bosom rendeth, one from heaven, the judge descendeth, on whose sentence all dependeth. And wondrous sound the trumpet flingeth, through her sepulchres it ringeth, and all before the throne it bringeth. And lo, that book exactly worded, wherein all hath been recorded, and thence shall judgment be awarded. And so again, it's a, it's, a, it's a solemn moment to be ready for, you see. And again, we have a Lord who loves us and wants to save us, but it will also be a moment of real truth, you see, in our lives. And so I think in, we, we, we all want to be ready. And we want people we love, and even our enemies, we want them to be ready. See? So the first theme I want to give you today is that in Advent and in Christmas, we see a coming together of both the truth and love. And that's the first theme I wanted to develop with you. St. Nicholas, whose feast is today, St. John the Baptist, are bo- both who figure prominently in Advent are very emblematic of this Advent theme. Hmm? that we should love one another enough to speak the truth. There's the old saying, um, uh, veritatem in caritate, the truth in love or the truth in charity. I think it was uh, slightly altered by uh, Benedict in his encyclical on uh, caritas, um, uh, you know, the, on, the, on the charity of God, <clears throat> caritatem veritate. But again, same idea, that truth and charity are meant to be together. Now, there comes... Um, uh, again, we, we want to see, for example, let me just read to you um, a, uh, it's, it's more of a, it's more of a, a quote, the, 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 the Pope's encyclical Caritas and Veritate, um, it, it sets forth a teaching that love and truth really need one another, right, for there to be a balance. So, you know, consider charity or love without reference to the truth. Uh, charity without reference to the truth too easily becomes soft. And it affirms what it should not, what should not be affirmed. And charity without truth can easily, uh, but but charity with, uh, with the charity without truth can easily enable bad behavior. And by this, um, it can, though with good intentions, further enslave people in self-destructive behaviors. Okay, so we see that charity without the truth leads others into error and sin by failing to correct. Uh, it robs others of their dignity through a kind of a soft bigotry of low expectations, right? You know, we've heard that expression before. This kind of charity is patronizing and it presumes that the poor, the needy, or those who are sinful simply can't be expected to attain higher goals. So it just moves the goalposts, right? Now, however, though, uh, you know, again, charity without the truth robs others of discipline, right? So we see that's the first, the first thing for us to ponder that that charity needs the truth, but also consider the opposite. <clears throat> consider the truth without charity. <clears throat> without charity or love, truth too easily becomes a club to swing at others, merely an argument to be won. Without charity, the truth can seem you know, to be harsh or demanding, um, something to be avoided and feared. Um, without charity, the truth can seem unattainable. You know, without charity, people lack the self-esteem needed to even consider that they could live the truth, you know? Um, and so, again, we want to somehow 
as as both John the Baptist and 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 Saint Nicholas both uh, both teach us, we want to be able to combine love and and uh, and the truth, or right? charity and the truth. Now, another big theme I want to develop with you in terms of um, of this is related, um, but it develops it a little further. Is that as we read in the the prologue of John's Gospel, his account of the Christmas story. It says um, in the uh, you know it, it, it speaks to us of um, uh, the in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Okay, now goes on of course through all that and it comes to this very ending and the word became flesh and dwelt among us or made his dwelling among us. So we're preparing for the word to become flesh. Now of course in Greek the word that we have here is logos. Now let's talk a little bit about. Again, the relationship between the love of God leaping down from heaven as the logos and the truth. So we start to see, first of all, that even before the incarnation, long before the incarnation, God created all things. And how did he create them? You know, he waved a wand. No, he said something. He said, let there be light. And there was light. So he creates through a word. A word, not a word that you hear with auditory ears, but again, uh, he, he, he literally thinks creation into being, but he thinks it through the word. And who is the word? The second person of the Blessed Trinity. And and this act of creation, he creates all things through the word. It's a book of the, the Colossians hymn says that regarding Jesus, all things were created through him. All things were created for him. And he is before all else that is. In him, everything has come into being. So through, God creates, but he, he creates through the word. Now, here comes, if, if you will, the insight. If God creates everything through the logos, the word, it imposes then on all of creation a logike, a logic. That is to say, God creates with wisdom, and his wisdom has an order, it has a um, uh, about it a an, an order that can be determined and seen. It has a purpose. It's moving in some direction. So when we look at the created world, we see uh, a logic about it, a logike in from the Greek. So the logos, namely that God creates through His Word, namely Christ, that it, it, since he, it, it imposes therefore a logic upon all things and so there therefore we see that uh, creation as we look about us is not just dumbly here it speaks it shouts i was created i was designed and not only that but not just for myself i'm looking at this great pine tree in front of me right now but you know it doesn't exist just for itself it interacts with me i put out co2 it takes it and gives back oxygen it interacts with the whole biosphere around it everything is brilliantly wonderfully ordered and so as Jesus now, the Logos, leaps down from heaven, he's going to add to this magnificent, if you will, unlock for us even at an even deeper level who have reason to understand what, why we were made, why things exist, what's our purpose, how to live, how to become truly human, and he'll reopen the gates of heaven to us. I'm, I'm a little ahead of myself, but I just want you to see that the first thing we want to note is that on this feast of the Logos, the word becoming flesh, we want to, first of all, just note that 
God speaks to us. He reveals the first book is not the Bible. The first book is creation. And St. Paul, of course, speaks about that in Romans. He speaks to the Gentiles who are without excuse because the invisible attributes of deity, namely God, can be seen in the visible attributes of what he has made. So they're without excuse. It's what we call in our tradition, the natural law, not the law of nature. It's the natural law. That is to say that using human reason, we can deduce order and purpose and what is right and what is wrong simply by the isness or the reality of things that are all right. So the first revelation comes simply in what God has made. Now, let me just pull up a note here from the, um, this is from the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, all right? Our holy, this is from paragraph 36 of the Catechism. Our Holy Mother of the Church uh, holds that and teaches that God, the first principle and last end of all things, can be known with certainty, his existence can be known with certainty from the created world by which the natural light of human reason uh, can, can determine. Without this capacity, man would not be able to welcome God's revelation. Man has this capacity because he's created in the image of God. In the historical conditions in which we find ourselves, however, we experience many difficulties. <laughs> Somebody say amen. Many difficulties in coming to know God by the light of reason alone. And this is a quote actually from the Second Vatican Council in the Catechism. Though human reason is, strictly speaking, truly capable by its own natural power and light, of attaining true and certain knowledge of the one personal God who watches over and controls the world by his providence and of the natural law written in our hearts by the creator. Yet there are many obstacles uh, that prevent human reason from the effective and fruitful use of this inborn faculty for the truths that certain uh, for the truths that, that concerns relations between God and man wholly transcend the visible order of things. Um, the human mind in this turn is hampered by the attainment of such truths, by the impact of the senses, our imagination, by disordered appetites, which are the consequence of original sin. So it happens that men in such matters easily persuade themselves of things uh, that, the, that what they would not like to be true is false or at least doubtful. Y'all, we love confusion. Oh, there's lots of opinions out there. Ooh, who's to say? You know, we love that, you know, if we're not careful. And then finally, this, the catechism says, and this this will bring me to my main point. This is why the man stands in need of being enlightened by God's revelation, not only about the things that exceed his understanding, but also those religious and moral truths of which themselves are beyond the grasp of human reason, so that we can with firm certainty know God uh, without any admixture of error. All right. Now, I hope all this isn't too geeky for you, but what I'm trying to show you is I want you to see that as the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, prepares once again liturgically for us to leap down from heaven and join us, that he is in, in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, in all of his love for us, seeking to cement and lead us further and further into the truth. Uh, and not just us, but as you see, this word would leap not just into a uh, into Bethlehem among the chosen people of God, but now wants to and is now leaping forward in all of humanity, going to every nation, every land. The church speaks every language. The church speaks is in every land, every power, sometimes in jail, but we're there, you know. Uh, we, uh, we're we there, we're preaching, we're teaching, not not we as humans, but what Jesus gave us, you see. And he comes as, a, as 
as the word through whom all things came to be. And now he walks among his own creation and, and he speaks to us with love, but also with clarity. You know, the Lord does not uh, tolerate a lot of foolishness and a lot of ambiguity. I don't know if you notice that. If you read, if you hear Jesus, he's not playing around. He's not saying, well, like there's lots of opinions out there and, you know, there's lots of different ways. No one comes to the Father except through me. Unless you leave everything or are willing to leave everything and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. You know, he talked like that. See? But you see, it's oh, that's harsh. Ooh. Uh, so much so that people actually try to just reinvent Jesus. Oh, the Jesus I know would never speak like that. Well, ma'am, I'm quoting him, you know? I mean, uh, you know, well, oh, but I don't know. No, that couldn't be him. You know, people are, uh, you know, the real Jesus had great, I mean, who had greater love? Nobody loves you and me. Jesus, just look to the cross and say, wow, what wondrous love is this, right? The old hymn says, what wondrous love is this, you know? Um, and yet, he spoke just like John the Baptist did to Herod. Careful, man. You're walking, you're walking on the edge of an abyss. Or like Nicholas had to go to Arius and say, you know, you're walking on the edge of an abyss, my friend. You're going to lose your way very quickly, and you're going to mislead other people, and God will hold you accountable. So, pow! You know, uh, it was just a, a quick way of putting it, you know. Um, but again, now, not that we should ever necessarily, in our sense, uh, be violent, but there should be a kind of a clarity and a certainty. So what we want to see, first of all, is, yes, the baby Jesus. We sentimentalize Christmas, as you know. Oh, the baby Jesus has come among us and this kind of stuff. But I want you to know that uh, even this baby Jesus is, um, um, well, uh, there's a, you know, as Bishop Barron well points out in his Catholicism series, there's a, a almost militaristic theme that in Luke's gospel, for example, there's a host or an army of angels, right? And uh, there is this uh, uh, declaration, behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people, which was exactly what was said when there was an edict from the emperor. So even here, the Lord is saying, uh, here's your real king, see? Um, here's your real joy. Here's your real glad tidings. Here's your real gospel, your real evangelion. Uh, here is your, um, your, your, your true and ultimate uh, one. And he has armies, too, the armies of the angels. And he is the ultimate Caesar, the ultimate victor. And not just he doesn't have just a whole area around the Mediterranean Ocean that belongs to him. The whole universe belongs to him. And all the angels serve him. And he is very God himself. And he has come to us. So all of this language, even the little baby Jesus, is very emperor-esque and it indicates a great revolution it indicates a great overturning of the powers of this world um that will in fact take place now i think i said this last week but let me say sometimes it doesn't seem like we're on the winning team like right now for example seems like we're besieged all around our culture has been declining for 50 60 years things are falling to pieces um and so on but remember there's more to winning than just winning each battle it's sometimes persevering when all the other. So again, where is Caesar now? Gone. No. Where are other you know people who threaten all those so-called Holy Roman emperors who tried to? Where where is uh, Luther? Where is Nap Napoleon? Uh, where are those who? You know, they're all gone, and we're still here preaching the very, the very same gospel. So again, remember the the there there has been and is a revolution, and it waxes and wanes. We go from Good Friday to Easter Sunday. We go back and forth, but it's here. 
Now, a final thought before I ask for some conversation from you, I want to talk a little bit about the logos again, this word of God. <clears throat> and um, go back to this idea of Christmas Day that we're preparing for. The, um, the gospel writers, um, and if you go to the ordinary form today, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, the word gospel that is taken up by the, uh, by the gospel writers to kind of declare their genre has a very political uh, background to it. And, and by the way, if you want to look this up, um, go to Jesus of Nazareth, volume one, somewhere about page 45 or 46, uh, Benedict, uh, writing under, you know, Joseph Ratzinger, develops this point. Um, he says the, the word evangelion in Greek and evangelium in Latin designated a decree from the emperor. Now, recently, this word gospel has been sort of translated as good news, but that, as, as, as Benedict says, falls far short of the true meaning of the word gospel. So he says, let's go back to the way it was for the emperors. When the emperor would issue an edict, a town crier, a karuks in the Greek, would come into the town square at a certain time of day, and people knew to expect him. He would cry out the local news, this town crier. And among the things he would say, behold, he says, I bring you today glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. Sound familiar? And the emperor has decreed that taxes are being raised. <laughs> now, it said that it will be a great joy to all the people. That was just the formula. It didn't necessarily mean it was cheerful news. But it, here's, the, here's the point. It's life-changing. When the emperor speaks, your life is different. You got it? So let's give, a, let's give another example. The town choir comes into the town square uh, and, and cries out, Behold, today I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today the emperor hath decreed that he is going to pave the road uh, between uh, Laodicea and Thyatira. Now that is good news. Travel will be easier, you know, and so on. Um, uh, but the main, again, the main point isn't that it's good news, but that it's life-changing news. And that's what the word gospel means. And then Pope Benedict goes on to say in that book, he says, therefore, he says, you see, what the emperors falsely claim, the gospel writers say is really true with Jesus, the word made flesh, that he is a word who will change your life. And so the word of God doesn't just simply inform, it performs. And I would add that it transforms. And how does it do that? Not by lying to us, but by bringing us the truth. See, there is this, he loves us enough to speak the truth to us. And this truth, his word, will utterly change us if we're faithful. And we will see our lives being changed and transformed. Um, the word of God does not simply inform. It performs and it transforms. You see. By the way, you can look all that up in Benedict's book. I'm paraphrasing it from memory. But I, I, what I want you to see here is that the, the, this combination, we have three things we've talked about today, and I want to get your reactions then, and I want to get your um, um, questions. We uh, see two examples today, St. Nicholas and also the readings today focus on John the Baptist in, in both the old form and the new form. Now look, <clears throat> the, um, they spoke the truth. Uh, but they spoke it with love, but they spoke the truth. And they spoke it to power, and they spoke it to ordinary people. 
uh, but they spoke it. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an intersection between love and the truth that we see there. Now, of course, God also creates everything in love according to his word. He spoke and everything came into being. God was not lonely. A God is simply love is, is effusive. It wants to share. It wants to expand and share itself. And, uh, and so God, out of total love, not out of need, out of total love, created all things by his word. And when he saw that we had fallen astray, he then once again had his word, his eternal word, Jesus, his son, leap down from heaven to speak a word to us that would utterly transform us. What are those words? This is my body. This is my blood. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I absolve you from your sins. Words like that, that change us, that transform us. But also, you take the word of God, which is now left down from heaven and become flesh, but also is taken written form. You take that scripture and you read it every day faithfully, whether through the office or going to mass or reading the daily mass readings. I'm going to just, just raise my hand. I'm going to testify. It will change your life. I am not, I'm not what I want to be, but I am not what I used to be because a wonderful change has come over me. And part, I give all God, all the glory, the liturgy, his holy word, the sacraments of confession and so on have changed my life. I am a changed man. I have my faults and my struggles still, but I can, I don't, I don't want to tell you what a, what a foolish man I think I was in my, in my early twenties. You know, I've come a mighty long way and God has, I don't take any credit for it. I just give God the glory because his word, his word is uttered in love. I think I quoted this to you last time. Uh, Augustine, who said, verbum dei nanas qualicumque verbum, said verbum spirens amorum, that the word of God is not just any old word. It's a word that breathes forth love. Now, there is this magnificent you know, combination then of love, the word of truth. Um, and we need them together. So today in Advent, on this Advent season, where we honor, especially today, John the Baptist and also St. Nicholas, who combined love and truth, we need to learn to do the same, but also to receive the same. But God will sometimes have to say a word that will challenge us. Any good sermon should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And we're both, we're all a little bit of both. And we need to receive both from God. All right? So... Today, then, the relationship between, in this Advent season, between love, truth, and the Word of God. So, that's enough for me. Good. We have a question coming in here from uh, Ines Collison. She writes, uh, do you think we're in a universal exile time with Mary calling us to conversion through her apparitions instead of prophets now? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Mary is the prophet par excellence. I mean, and uh, she's made it pretty clear to us, you know, look, we're either going to decide to pray and and and, and repent or uh, it's going to get very dark for us. And I think that I, I see our times, um, they could they could be worse. We're talking like asteroid, you know, hitting the planet or something. But <clears throat> they're, they're, they're not so good. And I think that... Um, so I, I think that we've averted complete catastrophe simply because some of us are praying. But I do think Our Lady has said, look, you know, you got to understand, um, you're either going to walk with my son or you're, you're heading toward disaster, collectively speaking. And uh, I think we're really beginning to see the real um, we're not just with the outer band of the storm now. We're, we're definitely in, in, 
into the uh, the hurricanes coming on land. And uh, we have sown the wind and we are reaping the whirlwind as a culture and the people. Right now, you know, before the plague, we were down to 21% of Catholics going to Mass on Sunday. And we seemed, collectively speaking, content with that. That is obnoxiously horrible. And now we're down to 8%. Only a third have returned. And again, hopefully some will come back when they're healthy and other things. But you get the idea. It's, we're, we're in trouble. And um, it's going to get worse if we don't pray. So, yes, I think that's where we are. Okay, I see Ahmed. I guess. Hello, Monsignor Pope. Um, I got a question. I think, like, uh, under the circumstances, you know, with the president-elect Biden, uh, like, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, negative things about the bishops. But yet, like, I'm talking about, like, lay, laymen, but, like, yet they're not doing anything either. Like, what, what's our responsibility in this case? Yeah, I, I think that um, in, in a certain sense, I, I mean, and I, I want to say this carefully because we, the clergy, have the first role to be leaders. However, I think lay people are in a certain sense are freer uh, because you're free to be partisan. Uh, we're, we're discouraged from being too partisan in the poll, but I think some of us who are older remember a time when a lot of clergy were, you know, hanging pretty far left and would often let this come into their pulpits and how they would preach. And uh, it really annoyed the heck out of a lot of more traditional Catholics in those years. And uh, we don't want to just simply, it's a double-edged sword of priests start getting uh, overtly political, uh, mentioning candidates or or presidents by name or uh, parties. We need to preach the principles. But I do think lay people are free to organize and to be out there in a much more partisan way. And you decide how and what that is. You know, you can't tackle every issue. I, I focus a lot on pro-life issues, but there are others I know and who, who focus on, on affordable housing or, uh, you know, immigration. We the, the church needs one heart and two wings to fly. But at the end of the day, we do have some very serious uh, uh, disagreements with uh, this current president on key moral issues, which are non-negotiable in the sense that, you know, it's not like you can sort of be okay with abortion. You just, you know, it's either or or sort of okay with gay marriage. No, it's either or, you know. Uh, so we we have a difficulty. I, I think, though, that, again, I, I'm not entirely sure I'm comfortable with a lot of bishops publicly uh, going up against Mr. Biden just now. I would, I would hope someone is privately going to him. I would also, though, say that if he starts to, when he, when he for example, let's say he signs something, that, 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 as he's threatened to do, that will greatly expand abortion, uh, so-called rights in this country. I, I think our, oblig- our, our USCCB has an obligation to speak very forcefully and warn him, you know, about the state of his soul. Because he's doing a public act, and a public act requires a public response. And this is something they seem completely unwilling to do. Now, they'll do that, for example, when President um Trump did some things with immigration. And I think the real difference, honestly, I'm just going to speak very frankly, is that the liberal media allows that. It's okay. You can get away with that, with with those kind of more left of center topics, but not with the right of center. And they're just very uh, timorous. They're just very anxious about it. And I think they need to get over that. But I I can't, you know, I'm I'm one lowly Monsignor. So I'm going to just, you know, I'll have to leave it at that. I'm getting, but I think, Maybe I mean, the way to put it is that you as a layman have a lot of flexibility. I think that you should find and, and, and Catholics should come together to uh, to um, um, 
you know, really work together to build. You know, there are theoretically 71 million Catholics in this country. If we were united, we'd be a force to be reckoned with. But that doesn't mean that 15 or 20 million really united working together couldn't, you know. Um, and I think that the temporal order really does belong to the laity. That is your purview. And a lot of times people want the clergy to lead the way in a political thing. I've been asked to come out to all kinds of political marches. And I said, that's not really where I belong. Um, but uh, even if I support it, uh, we have to be very careful as clergy. I hope that I hope I haven't talked too long about that. But uh, as you know, I'm willing to speak out very clearly on the moral issues, but I do try to avoid uh, directly attacking presidents and calling out people by name uh, only because I think that that sometimes I lose some of the people I'm trying to reach. And um, I want to try to reach some of the people I don't ordinarily reach. But you get the idea. Thank you. Here's another question. Uh, it's actually coming in from an anonymous attendee, um, but I actually, it resonates a lot with me and I think with probably a lot of us here. Um, she mentions or he mentions, uh, I'm thankfully transitioning from lukewarm, but I've fallen more recently into truth rather than truth and charity. I think I was more charitable before. How can I bring that love back into my thinking instead of just searching for or maybe emphasizing the truth one of the things i do in my in my parish like let's say i'm going to talk against uh i'm going to talk about a difficult moral topic in terms of controversy like gay marriage or abortion or um <clears throat> you know uh, transgenderism or something to that effect i usually preface it by saying now look i want you to know something i love you too much to, to lie to you i just cannot and i will not lie to you i have to tell you that abortion is a great crime against humanity. It is a horrifying thing that we have permitted in our that there are not 50 genders. There just aren't, my dear people, there just aren't. Um, there's two sexes, God made us male and female. Or again, uh, gay marriage is, 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 is there's no such thing. And um, God has told us what marriage is, as well as natural law. And um, we, uh, we can't, I just simply cannot stand up here and lie to you. Uh, I'm your pastor, I care about you. You need to know the truth, and it's only the truth that'll set you free. You know? So you try to frame it in in, in love, and uh, you know there are going to be some people. Ah, it's just a bunch of lingo. You don't really. If you don't agree with me, you don't love me. That's that's a very common theme in our culture. But I would just say that I, I think you know. For example, let's say at a more personal level, you're dealing with son or daughter who's no longer going to mass, or they're living together with someone outside of marriage. You say, dear, I'm I'm just concerned for you. I, I really don't. I don't want you to go to hell. And the Bible is very clear that these people cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, you know, who engage in fornication and don't repent. You know, I'm here. I'm just concerned. I really don't want you to suffer eternal punishment. I hope you know I love you. you know, that would be some examples. Okay, here's one that came in again from an anonymous participant. It reads, in receiving the word of God in order to save our eternal souls, how does one overcome the fear of giving a good confession and receiving God's word, especially as it may be a tough love message uh, that you're in for? How can we prepare ourselves for a truly good confession this Advent? Interesting. I, I'm, I'm a little bit, well, you mean, I guess they're meaning the sacrament of confession and they're concerned that the priest might react kind of badly. I, I think that's where it's going. Yeah. I hope not. Um, 
You know, the Pope some years ago was kind of down on all these grouchy confessors. I said, I think we got the opposite problem sometimes. <laughs> there's too many priests and confessors like, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you know? I mean, I ah, makes my head want to explode. But somewhere, I think most priests have, I, and I hope that, you know, and again, ask around too, maybe before you go, you know, do you know a good confessor, you know, who could deal with some difficult topics? I've done some, some things that I, I'm really... I'm struggling with, you know, some degree of shame or fear or guilt about, is there a good confessor, you know, because what a good confessor can do is say, look, this is serious, but you know, I want you to know God never stopped loving you. And um, you're here, you're in the right place and let's get started. I think the only really difficult confessions I have are when people come and they may not always know uh, that I can't absolve them because they're not, they're in a situation where they're not able to or, or willing to leave it just now. And I have to delay uh, I have to delay absolution. It's not too common, but it's common. You know, it happens every now and again. I would say those are the only difficult ones. And even there, I try to keep the door open. And I say, well, I hope you can understand there isn't something I can do about that right now until we can try to you know, resolve this. And maybe they're living together with somebody and they don't feel economically they can get free. But I said, if the two of you can agree to live chastely um, and let your family know that you're doing that, I think... Uh, you know, but you know what I'm saying? We have to put things in place and they're not ready to do it. But I try to even there be very kind and keep the door open. And I, I think most priests I know are, are are happy and joyful when people who've been away for a long time come to us. And um, we're, we're more than happy to, to work with them um, in a way that I think is, is clear, but also compassionate. And um, after all, I mean, the fact that they're in a confessional means... They're not shaking their fists and saying, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, we're not in a contentious relationship with a person like that. We're, we're a friend. Okay, you, you've come. Let's, let's get to work. Let's see what we can do. And um, uh, let's absolve you of your sins. But if there's some things that maybe I can help you with, like virtues, or sometimes refer you to, I don't know, maybe Project Rachel or, 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 or uh, you know, AA or whatever. But, you know, I mean, there's, there's different things. But mainly to preach the virtues. Here's some virtues for you to ask from God, you know. And... Um, but I think generally, I hope that you'll be reassured that I think most priests are uh, good, good men. But you, you, if you have anxiety, ask around, ask some parishioners or ask them, who do you know is a good confessor? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Monsignor. Yeah, I, I know that last time, uh, last last week at the first reflection, uh, the topic of confession came up and, and we mentioned there are a couple of resources in our library as well. We actually linked to those in the posted resources for today's event. So if you're on our website and looking at Keeping Watch Advent Reflections, under posted content, there are links to uh, a great exam, a guided examination of conscience, and then one of Monsignor Pope's older reflections on the sacrament of penance as well. And uh, hopefully those could be uh, of use uh, as well. And, and I know, Monsignor, you mentioned the Ten Commandments book that you had uh, written was a good resource as well. With that, um, would you please uh, end this session in prayer? Yes. Um, well, Lord, we do face difficult times in this Advent season. Um, likely change at the, at the level of the presidency and different makeups of Congress and things. So Lord, we, we ask you to uh, uh, help us. And especially with this pandemic, can we just please get free of it, Lord? Help us to not be so afraid and um, help us to rejoice that a vaccine is available if, uh, if, if, or, or at least some, some solutions for people who are that afraid. So Lord, we ask you please to uh, um, give us mercy, give us grace, but above all, Lord, prepare our hearts um 
because one day we're going to die. We don't get to say when or how, and um, we're going to go meet you. And uh, so continue the work to get us ready for that day. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.